look how deep you dig and look how hard you hustle for other people. What if you took a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of that and allotted that energy and passion and know-how to yourself? Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk with Tara Quinn, who's a certified career coach specializing in life sabbaticals, specifically the kind of sabbaticals that make time for long-term world travel. You know, back when I wrote Vagabonding, I mentioned sabbaticals and anti-sabbaticals and long-term leaves of absence from work. But as I say in the interview, people who've read my book don't usually contact me to talk about how they negotiated a sabbatical. They usually tell me stories about how they went backpacking through Southeast Asia or trekking in the Andes or wine tasting in Italy. But since creating a work sabbatical is often what makes those life-changing adventures possible, I figured I'd talk to Tara about the ins and outs of how sabbaticals work, how best to implement one, and how to resume work when you get home. You know, taking a career break to go vagabonding is no longer seen as an irresponsible act. And in fact, now more than ever, it's common to include it on your resume to enhance your work prospects when you get home. This in mind, Tara and I talk about taking a sabbatical to take a break from work versus using sabbatical travel to transition into a whole new career. We talk about how sabbatical travel can deepen your career options, even as it proves to be a lot of fun. We talk about coping with travel difficulties and how these challenges are often the very thing that make you stronger in a way that applies to your life and your work back home. We even talk about how watching the movie Dude, Where's My Car? re-energized my trip to India back in the day. That's no joke. Should you decide to embark on a long-term work sabbatical around the world, you should definitely check out the online flight planning tools offered by my sponsor, Airtrex, which specializes in the exact kinds of multi-stop and round-the-world flight itineraries people dream about when they dream about sabbatical travel. Go to Airtrex.com and plug in some destinations for your dream trip to see what I'm talking about. This episode is also brought to you by Tortuga, which makes backpacks and backpack accessories perfect for long-term journeys, be they work sabbaticals or vagabonding trips in general. Go to rolfpots.com tortuga to see a selection of their travel packs. You know, as I mentioned last week, we've streamlined things there now, so you don't even need to enter a promo code. Just go to rolfpots.com tortuga, and a 10% discount will automatically be applied to your order. This is a new procedure, so if for some reason it doesn't work out, just give us a heads up at deviateatrolfpots.com and we'll make sure your discount gets sorted out. All right, here's Tara Quinn offering up some insights on how to take a sabbatical from your job and how a sabbatical journey can not just enhance your life, but also enhance your job and your job options when you get home. You know, in vagabonding, I actually talk about sabbaticals. I talk about anti-sabbaticals. I talk about constructive quitting and leaves of absence. Yes, yep. But I still like, I, I feel have a, I have some, a bit to learn because um, when people come and say, hey, I read vagabonding, they don't come and say, they don't give me a 10 minute story about how they negotiated a sabbatical. They give me a 10 minute story about how they hiked through Nepal or, or went to Cape Town or, or spent time mm-hmm. in Costa Rica. Uh, so I feel like I'll, I have some uh, to learn from this conversation. Um, and, and, and actually, since I wrote the book, when, when the ver- book first came out, I said, yeah, taking time off, don't hide it, just put it on your resume. And when the book that's- first came out, people would say, oh my God, who, who does that? Now, that's so much more normal. It's, it's a more normalized yes. thing. 
Um, yeah. and, and I get less grief about that because in the ensuing years since I wrote the book, um, it's just become a more normal thing. So I'm really curious to hear about your experiences and the experiences of your clients as someone who advises people in sabbaticals. Um, so how did you get started? So I, well, and, and I absolutely agree. I will echo that I think it's much more, I think, you know, to your very good point in the book, I don't know that it's more common that people are doing it these days, but I think that they're more vocal in, in a public facing way and they can be a little less um, surreptitious about like checking out for a little bit. Um, but my trip started, or well, my three month visa uh, coaching started as an offshoot of a trip that I took. And this is actually kind of a special year because this is the 15 year anniversary of my own year around the world. Mm -hmm. um, I know, right? I'm just like, oh, look at the calendar and the photos. And I mean, you know, 15 years ago, I was backpacking with digital, I mean, or I'm sorry, with analog film. And so it was a different time. Yeah. Um, but my trip came about, and I think there've been a lot of great changes, but when I was brainstorming this trip and really dreaming of it, there were really only a few books, honestly, that were out there. Yours was one of them. Um, and just having the fact that there was a voice out there that was like, yeah, this can be done and you're not crazy. And do it for you. And um, there was a great collection of essays edited by Don George that I think it was Wanderlust. And it was when Salon.com had some fantastic travel writing that was going on. And yeah. that, I remember finding that book and it has Pico Ayer's Why We Travel as the intro. Hmm. So good. Um, that that is you super good. I yeah. spoke with him recently. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so there was only a handful of books. And I think one of the other ones was Tales of a Female Nomad by Rita Golden Gelman. Mm -hmm. And I kind of just, you know, read those books for sustenance and inspiration and was like, okay, the rest of it, you got to figure out. Um, but the way that my coaching practice came around kind of just started with curiosity because when I came back, I settled into a job at a consulting firm here in San Francisco and two things started to happen that formed this really weird and cool intersection. But the first thing was that I started meeting so many people who would say, oh, that's so great. I really want to do something like that. Like what you did, essentially quit and go travel for a bit. And I'd be so thrilled for them. I'd say, that's great. When are you going? And they would just kind of go, oh, you know, probably never. And I was like, wait, huh. what? <laughs> So there, it seemed like there was such a uh, longing out there for people to be doing this, but also people really resigned to never having it happen. So I got curious about why, because I say this sincerely to this day, if I can do something like this, anyone can do something like this. It might take years to plan and save for, it might be labor, it will be labor intensive and challenging at times, and it should be, but it can be done. And what I started kind of picking up anecdotally was that a lot of what was holding back these people was perceived obstacles, self-imposed limitations, and good old-fashioned fear. Like, And so that was kind of, you know, knocking around in my brain about these people really wanting to do this and not. And then the other thing that I started learning more about, which was a completely new uh, concept to me, was the idea of executive coaching. And... I had recently moved to the Bay Area, really hadn't heard about that before. And one day I was interviewing a candidate that we were considering bringing into our network and possibly placing on a project. 
And one of the things that he mentioned on his resume was that he was an executive coach. And I said, well, what does this mean? Like, walk me through this. Tell me about your day to day. And I'll never forget, he had a really great explanation. And he said, well, I work with individuals and teams to get really clear on mission and values, scope incredibly ambitious projects, and then keep people accountable and break down these really big projects with a lot of moving parts and keep people moving forward so that they get accomplished. I was like, oh, okay. And so that was kind of sitting there. And then I had this very strange light bulb moment where I realized that's what a sabbatical is. It's a really large, ambitious, mission and values-based project with a heck of a long to-do list. And I suddenly thought, oh my gosh, oh, that would be such a good vehicle for helping people take care of these career pivots and evolutions and or take time off while they're doing it. And so um, I look back at this younger version of myself with both amusement, but also a little bit of like, yeah, good luck with that. Because I was like, oh, I'm just going to start a company. It's going to be super easy. Um, It's not. But, you know, my younger self was like, oh, yeah, let's do this. So that's how it started was having that light bulb moment. Um, So you became a coach in this regard. And what kinds of issues and anxieties were people coming to you with in regards to wondering about a sabbatical? I think the first and foremost was the idea of permission. I think knowing that other people have done this and come home and been able to re-enter the professional workforce in different ways, some of them going back to the job they had previously and having that be very successful, some people striking out and doing something very different um, and often using their travels as a way to evolve into those new roles or professional, um, you know, to train themselves essentially. Um, I think permission is a huge one. They just, they want to know that it's possible and having case studies and being able to tell them, I think, especially now that I'm over a decade in being able to show them examples is huge. And then I think the other piece is that although I've worked with clients who are, you know, a broad age range, you know, as young as teenagers who are looking to take a gap year before college up to people retirement age, looking to retire abroad, there's a sweet spot for my client base that tends to be people who've been in the professional workforce for at least 10 to 12 years. And so they've become indoctrinated in the way that traditional American workforce tends to run, which is that you pick a corporate ladder and you climb it. And so many of my clients have done so very, very successfully. And so it's they get to the place where being off of that ladder, even if they realize it's really the wrong one for them, is very intimidating because the messaging is very strong that, oh, you have a dream job and you're so successful at it. And so much of their identity is tied up in that. I see clients say this over and over. I don't know who I would be without my job. People esteem me because of it. So much of my success is tied up in it. And then the coaching question becomes, well, who do you want to be beyond your job? And you don't give up that success just because you take a breather. It feels like we're given, like we get these rites of passage uh, societally. And one of them is that that rite of passage that goes from college graduation to the corporate ladder. And some careers are, are much more concrete in this than others. There's there's also like the idea of a gap year, which is not a very American idea that some American no. <laughs> young, young people will do this, but that's more of a, a British idea of taking taking a year off before college or maybe after college. Um, but the mm-hmm. sabbatical 
and you, you you use that word like 10 years, 10, 12 years into the career, it's not a rite of passage. There really is no social um, framework by which you can take time off. And so, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm really curious about what's going through people's heads as they, um, you know, when they, when, when they come to you and, and have questions about this. That's a great question. And then I completely agree with you that there's no, there's no automatic trigger for, Oh, this is when I take my sabbatical. It's not an American phenomenon. Although I'm working my hardest to change that. <laughs> That'll be a longer journey. Um, we don't think of gap years as something that's a birthright or something that's normal. Even people think you're crazy. Whereas if you were British or, you know, European or Australian, it's like, Oh, of course you go. Of course, have a great trip. Um, I think people come to me with one of two scenarios and often both. I think one of them is burnout. I see that over and over and over again, that people are just truly exhausted and tapped and they need to recharge their batteries And I think the other one is that they've climbed this corporate ladder often to great success only to realize, oh, I worked my tail off to be great at this and I actually don't enjoy it. It's not the best fit for me. And that's really scary to say, I climbed this ladder. It's up against the wrong wall. I need a redo or not even a redo, but like I need to, this isn't what I want to keep doing the rest of my life. So I think it's those two things. It's either just energetic burnout or it's that realization of I've been so good at something that I don't want to continue being good at forever. And I need to think about this. Um, and oftentimes it's both. So, and, and that goes into those societal things. You know, I, I taught at Penn for a while, which, you know, famously has Wharton business school. My Wharton students were great. Mm-hmm. Often they were making six figures by their mid twenties and they were the least happy. I love my former students. They're the least happy, uh, wealthy 20 somethings that I ever met because I think yeah. in America, we have less of a compulsion to think about context, you know, to think about well, why are we working? You know, there's the live to work versus work to live type thing. There's these, this idea that in America, maybe more than most countries, you define yourself by work. Yes. Yep. And actually, you'll see that. I'm sure you've heard this on the road. And, and I'm guilty of it as well. I live in the Bay Area. But one of the first questions that we ask people when we meet them as Americans mm. is, oh, pleasure to meet you. What do you do? Yeah. And you get, you get called on that when you're traveling, like on the mat, you'll get people be like, "Ugh, don't ask me that first. And I actually really appreciate that because it's a natural reflex for me as an American, especially in the Bay area. You've got a lot of interesting jobs here. I am truly curious, especially as a career coach about what people do. But I remember chatting with this French woman. Uh, It was one of those great conversations you get into when you're hanging out on the road. And she said, it baffles me that Americans lead with that. Because in France, you could be an hour into a conversation and then suddenly go, oh, I forgot to ask you, what do you do? <laughs> and I, I like that. And I'm careful when I travel to not lead with it unless they do. So, yeah, I, but I it, think, it's, it's very much written into who we are. I think Americans learn that the hard way, um, that, that it's just it's so inbred in American culture. And I think there's a lot of um, Americans could probably use their own uh, coaching service on like starting conversations because I'm, I'm based in Kansas when I'm not traveling and people who don't know about Kansas will often come. And the first thing they'll ask people is like, Oh, did you vote for Trump or what, what's your politics? And like, nobody talks oh, about gosh. it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like the only perceptions people have about the middle of the country are political perceptions. And it's just something right. that, that in this part of the country, 
we that's like the twelfth thing that comes to mind, you know. Um, and so exactly, that's just a, a random example of how poorly trained we are as Americans in in conversational habits. Um, and and so on the road, yeah, it, it's a default thing. It really is. Um, and so when clients come to you, sort of with these anxieties and with these ambitions to do something different, where do you start with them? So I think in, in coaching, what I really want to establish is, and, and this sound, this is very simplistic way of putting it, but what I am most interested in is a gap analysis because coaching, what goes into it is a lot more complex, but really at its essence, it's what does your life look like now? What do you want it to look like? Hmm. What's the Delta? And then we look at that Delta and say, and it can be very, very vast. It can, you know, that can be a and people look at that Delta and say, Oh, forget it. It's not even worth it. I don't want to deal with this. But if you have someone in your corner, who's like, this is absolutely doable. I can give you case studies of people who've done it. It's not going to happen overnight, but we will get you there. That's really empowering. And I say this also as a client, like I've worked with coaches to be like, this is what I want my life to look like. And Oh gosh, cause I'm human too. And they're like, relax, we got this. You'll be fine. Um, but that's really the essence of it. What does your life look like now? What do you want it to look like? What's the Delta? And let's start to break that down and move the needle forward a bit. And that's really in a nutshell what we do, but it's very unique for each client and it's not that easy, but that's the, the gist. <laughs> you sent me some, 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 some blurbs and outtakes and thoughts from some of your clients. One of them used the phrase magic wand exercise. Is that what you're talking about? Or is that a different exercise? That's well, that's actually kind of in a nutshell, a great way of putting it because a lot of times we, and our brains do this. And one of the things I've studied as a coach is neuroscience. And I find it fascinating what our brains will do to trip us up and keep us safe. Quote unquote. Um, the minute we start to think about a bigger, grander vision, we have hardwired protective, like neuro, like neurons that will essentially say like, no, 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 no. Here's all the reasons that won't work. Um, and so the magic wand exercise is to get people around the how and the intimidation of certain larger visions by saying, look, don't worry about the how yet. If I handed you a magic wand, what do you really want? And that allows people to just for a minute quiet those inner saboteur voices that are like, no, 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 no. This is never going to work. You're not capable, et cetera, et cetera. And go, okay, this is what I really want. And then from there, We'll deal with the voices. We'll deal with the obstacles and the challenges. But yeah, I was really touched that she said that, that she continues to go back to that exercise for herself, even years after we've worked together. Do you, do you have your clients read anything? I mean, you know, there's, there's a, in, in, in the corporate world, sometimes you don't, you aren't exposed to like Henry David Thoreau or certain poets or, or other things. Are there, are there, are there, is there a set? bunch of texts that you have them read to think about their values and then and lead with their values instead of their compulsions? Or do you have more of a sort of a, a list of, of bullet points that you fall back on that are just more practical and, and concrete to what you are trying to advise? That's a great question. Um, I think what I start with is really mining their vision values, what they really want before I throw a bunch of reading material at them. Because I think especially in these days of this is kind of, it can be a real blessing, but it can also trip us up. There's been this huge proliferation of reading material in terms of like 
travel blogs. And I mean, back when, and I, I'm dating myself with these references, but I tell people, you know, when I took my year off, it, there was no Facebook, there were no travel blogs. I mean, I think salon.com had some great travel writing, but there wasn't a heck of a lot going on online. And that can be seen as like a lack of resources to research with, but actually in a way it's a blessing Hmm. because you go inward first and say, what do I want my trip to be? And then you seek out a few experts and you're like, okay, great. I feel validated and I feel like I can go do this. What I've noticed with clients is that, you know, certain travel blogs and, and resources can be incredibly useful. And because there's so many of them, it can become overwhelming and people kind of get a little bit of analysis paralysis and they lose their own voice. So, you know, they'll say like, oh, this person travels this way and this person does this and there's all these different philosophies. And then they forget to ask, wait, what's my style of travel that serves me? So what I start with with each client is before you go there, tell me about your dream trip. What would you be doing? Because if what you want is I I was listening to your episode recently with the woman who was trekking across Europe Mm -hmm. and how that just slowed travel down for her and helped her meet locals. And if that's the type of travel that someone needs to be doing or really wants to be doing, great. That's a great resource for them. But if what someone wants to be doing is oh, well, this is one of my first trips and I do want to do the high level sightseeing and kind of, I loved when you said, sometimes it's a really great thing to be scratching the surface in a mindful way. If that's the type of trip someone wants, then that's the type of resource they should get. So the first thing I do with people is try and suss out what's the trip you dream of and then give them a few resources to begin with and say, make sure that you find the right balance for yourself of finding resources that are resonant and really speak to you and don't worry too much about overwhelming yourself because I've seen that happen too. Um, The one thing that I give to almost everyone is that essay by Pico Iyer because it's so powerful and he's not telling you how to travel He's talking about the way that travel shifts us and changes us and cracks the world open in a beautiful way and changes us and that it's not prescriptive. It's telling people to like look inside, figure out the way that you want to travel and then go do it. Um, so that's one of the big ones. A lot of people get a copy of Vagabonding. I'm not going to lie. And I'm not just saying that all with you. Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so Vagabonding is a great one. Uh, well, I'll put that in the show notes. I'll also put Pico Iyer's uh, essay in the show notes because it's so good. It, it, it's, yeah. such a, it, it's such a great essay. And you know, you're you know, you're talking about how the travel world has changed and how the information world has changed. Sometimes I'll go on Instagram, I'll look at travel Instagram, see all these beautiful pictures, and I'll feel anxiety. I've been doing this for twenty years, and I'll feel this. <laughs> this yeah, this, exactly. This this sort of FOMO feeling that that really it, it's become. The, the 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 information world or sort of the dream world of travel is so exactly. has so much variety and so much almost fake perfection that it can be a little bit uh, demoralizing sometimes. Um, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious about what what's the process then between that decision. Well, actually, first first off, are most of your clients uh, 
do you specialize in sort of travel sabbaticals or do you have some clients to say, oh, I want to take a year off and coach softball for my kids or grow some weed in my backyard or something? Do you, or is it mostly <laughs> travel? Um, actually, uh, it's a mix of both. And I think what I really appreciate about my practice over the years is it's actually diversified. So I started out really strongly with the sabbatical coaching as kind of the only niche that I was marketing. Um, and I love that over the years, now I do a lot of corporate uh, executive coaching. So things like team building and leadership development, organizational development. Um, and then I do personal and career coaching. The niche that I'm known for though, is, is sabbatical coaching because one of the blessings of the Bay area is there's a lot of coaches here. So if I was in a conversation with someone and said, Oh, I just do career coaching. They'd be like, okay, like you and everybody else. Um, so sabbatical coaching does set me apart and travel coaching, but some of my clients come to me essentially for career evolution. And they don't want to take time off and go travel. They just want to be doing something different. Um, so I'm most known for travel and sabbaticals. But what really, I think the common thread that ties my favorite type of client together is there are people who are ready to make a shift or a pivot or something, you know, have things evolve in a certain way in their life. Um, so a lot of my clients never get on a plane. And that's huh. great. Well, I think because I'm a travel guy and because probably most of my listeners, if if they're not travelers yet, they're maybe listening to this because they want to be travelers. We'll probably focus on that aspect of what you do. So yep. I, I'm curious between that that decision to do it and the actual stepping out the front door, which is something I talk about in vagabonding, um, what happens during that process? Because that's that's not a that's not a short or an easy process. What goes into the decision to do it versus the stepping out the door, having talked to your boss, having talked to your family, having gone through all your anxieties? What kinds of issues come up during this phase? Uh, it totally depends on the client. It is, I mean, the, the process is very bespoke, but I think there's always some commonalities. And I, you know, I've always said like, stamp your passport, pack your bags and hit the road is kind of the overarching process. The stamp your passport part is the permission and the visioning and kind of building up what I call an arsenal of inspiration. Cause it's going to get hard at some point along the way of, pre of preparing. And if it doesn't get difficult at some point along the way, then we're not dreaming big enough. Like if clients are coming to me and saying, Oh, this is really comfortable and hmm. great. I'll be like, uh, okay, what are you not telling me? <laughs> because if we're not leaning into a learning edge, then we're not dreaming big enough. Um, so the stamp your passport part is really about figuring out what's the trip you want to create. What's the dream for this? Where do you want to go? And if you are looking to evolve or pivot your career, what does that look like? How does this travel serve as a vehicle for you to transform what you'll be doing when you come home? So once we have that locked down, it's essentially it's like standing in front of a beautiful blank canvas and saying, what do you want to paint here? What are we doing? And then from there, it's okay, we got a pretty big to-do list and we have to pick a paintbrush and a corner and a color. Where do we begin? So it's setting priorities, essentially project management, prioritization, and then we have to take action on some of this. So it's helping people avoid the overwhelm that comes with trying to tackle everything at once. You don't have to paint that whole mural in 23 minutes. You've got a few months or sometimes years to break this down and work on it. What happens first and how do we keep you moving forward? Um, 
And then in terms of, to your very good point, when do I speak to my boss? What does that conversation need to look like? And that always depends on what the client um, is really looking to do with their sabbatical. Because some people, they know full well that all they need is two to three months to recharge and they do want to come back to their job. So we're going to be having a different conversation than one that a client would need to prepare for if they want to quit and be gone for two and a half to three years. Hmm. So it really depends on their their personal and professional goals. You use the word uh, uh, career pivot. And, and does that mean that like they're pretty sure that they want to quit and try something else? Or does that mean pivot within their existing job? Um, it can be both. But a lot of my clients have used travel. I mean, this is one of the things that just makes my heart sing about this niche is that travel can actually be a great vehicle for prof- professional development that you would not necessarily get access to staying in your current job. So, and actually I have permission to share Dave's story and I I forwarded a little bit of his email to you because he was so thrilled when he heard about this interview because vagabonding was a really important book to him. Um, and he used that word permission. He's like, for some reason, when Rolf said like, you can do this and you already have everything you need, it just clicked for him. Hmm. Um, but David, I mean, his before and after photos just put the biggest smile on my face because when we started working together, um, he was working in the insurance industry in New York and, you know, of his own description, he was like, you know, he's a New York bro, like grew up in New England, worked in New York and he was very successful. Um, but when we started to really dig into what would your ideal life look like? What would your trip look like? And he said, I want to sell down. And this was before Marie Kondo too. Dave was a guy ahead of his time. He's like, I want to get rid of a lot of this stuff. Hmm. I want to keep the things that are important to me and get rid of everything else. And he had a real passion for um, cooking and slow food and agriculture. Um, his grandmother had taught him to cook. Like there was family ties there too. And he said, you know, above and beyond the tools and kitchen stuff that my grandmother gave me, I kind of don't need most of this stuff that I own. So over time he started selling everything off, whittled it all down to a pickup truck with a cap on it where he kept a lot of this food stuff. And he ended up not only traveling in the Caribbean, but also road tripping around the American South where he started learning about agriculture and slow food and barbecue. I mean, he went and like learned about blues and Memphis and barbecue and like learned about Jeff Buckley. And it was just fantastic. And then what he did was begin to apprentice with people who were experts in the field he was curious about. So cuisine and, you know, sustainable agriculture ended up being able to be hired into someone else's staff on a farm. And now he owns his own. So he ended up buying land in South Carolina and owns and runs a really successful organic farm. So to be doing that, like he's a seasoned farmer now. And to be doing that when several years ago he was in insurance, nobody else is going to design that career pivot for you, but he was able to make it happen through travel. And and there's probably not like offices full of insurance brokers just dreaming of becoming farmers. You know, that's specific to him. And it, it's such a great story. Exactly. It's it's such a great story, in part because of that family connection, you know, that that um again, society is telling us to go to an office and be successful, which is fine. But then also there's traditions that inform our lives as well. And you know, I traveled around the world for years and years. I lived overseas in Asia, I wrote Vagabonding and other books. 
Uh, but now I came back to Kansas, which is where I'm from, and I actually see my family as often as I see strangers, right? So I think one thing that's easy to forget when advising travel is that sometimes travel can remind you to pay attention to the traditions in your own life and your own family. Um, yeah. and, and so that's great. That, that That's not really a prescriptive thing, that his story isn't saying, oh, well, everybody should become farmers, but basically that him, Dave, is that his name? Dave, mm -hmm. yeah. Dave became a farmer because he realized that's what made him happy, right? And so I think it exactly. really, really goes. Uh, and th this is something actually. It's it's, a, it's something I'd like to touch on, which is the travel itself. And I realize not all your clients travel, but there's a sense at which travel is something you do for fun. And I'm not against traveling for fun. And in fact, when I talk to college students, I often say, "Well, just just don't overthink it. Go out and have a good time, and eventually you'll fall into things that blow your mind, and you'll be learning every day." Um, so how do you advise people to make the most of their travels in such a way that they're not just sitting on the beach uh, sipping cocktails all the time, but they're actually traveling in an interactive way that goes beyond vacations, but actually goes in a life-enhancing way? Yes, exactly. Um, so what I often talk to clients about is in order to you know, have your trip give you what you want it to you have to figure out what you're asking for, what you hope that it will give to you. And to your very good point, I am not against fun travel. Like you can, and, and to your point, eventually the meaning of your trip will show up. So I'm like, hmm. yeah, you can just go hit the road and it'll be like a bit of a magic eight ball where eventually something will float to the surface and be like, hey, pay attention to this. And you do get to be a little bit directive. So um, what I ask clients is, what do you hope the ideal impact of this trip might look like? And so, for example, if they said, well, I want to become a farmer. Okay, great. What's the delta? And the question that I ask for people who are looking to enhance or pivot or evolve their career is what are the skill sets and or experiences that you see as lacking on your CV that you need to garner? Because a lot of times we think, and this is one of the, the misperceptions about travel that I'm hoping to like course correct a little bit in the United States, is that travel is essentially only, to your good point, for fun. Like travel is only recreation. It's where we go to get away from our jobs. It's where we go to stop developing as professionals. And I'm like, no, no, no. It can be so professionally edifying. And so when you look at travel, a lot of times we say, well, I'm not learning because I'm having fun. I'm not growing as a professional because I'm having the time of my life. And we have this phrase here, like no pain, no gain. And I'm like, no, no, it's so toxic. Don't think that way. So for example, if like I had a client who used to work in healthcare tech and that eventually got into the wine industry, but again, that's a big pivot. And so it's like, well, what would you need to know to get into that space, to get into that different sphere? And so one of the things that she did was live in Paris for months and she went to the Cordon Bleu, same school that Julia Child went to, but she studied wine. And essentially she was like, I have a huge knowledge gap. Great. How does your travel pose an opportunity to address that knowledge gap? So we look at your resume and say, what skill sets and or what experiences could you track down on the road that then when you come home have now qualified you for a different type of work or experience? So, yeah, it's it's the kind of thing that you just don't find in universities. And I, you know, I'm not knocking universities, but the world has so much to teach in a firsthand way, you know, not in a textbook way. I actually I had, I had a writing student in Paris who was interested in food writing. And I told her, 
go to Cordon Bleu. I literally sent one of my students to Cordon Bleu because then you get the expertise. You know, if you're already interested in writing, then that gives you the expertise in the food itself and the food selection and preparation and things like that. A quick aside, um, the digital nomad movement has become very popular over the last five or 10 years. Is what you do, does it dovetail with digital nomadism or is it a separate category entirely? Um, I think some of my clients are interested in, in, you know, using the opportunities that the digital nomad movement has opened up for them. And some of them are not. I think, and I think that's the other thing is being at full permission to decide upon your own digital, you know, what's the word I'm looking for social media, like digital media strategy. Some people do want to keep blogs and do want to be communicating to family back home in that way. But I encourage all of my clients to, before you feel that you have to, for example, start a blog or be posting up a storm on Facebook, ask yourself, given that social media is pretty ubiquitous at this point, um, ask yourself first, how do I want to use that or not? during my experience. Um, so for example, when I first got into, uh, sabbatical coaching back in 2006 and blogging was kind of on the rise at that point, everyone told me, Oh, you need to start a blog. You need to start a blog. And it never resonated with me personally. And so I didn't. Um, and I'm glad I didn't like, it's just, I don't have the bandwidth to maintain a coaching practice and a really successful blog. And I would want it to be good. It's a lot of work to do it well. And so what I tell people is ask yourself, do you want to be work, you know, moving through your days on the road, knowing I have to capture video, I have to be taking photos, I need to be thinking about what I post. And if the answer is yes, like if that's exciting for you, great. If the answer is no, then that's your answer and it's okay. Um, so I think digital, the, you know, the digital nomad movement has opened up again, a lot of opportunities but use them mindfully and decide if they're right for you. Because a lot of my clients have no interest whatsoever. If they're doing this to get off the grid, get off the grid. <laughs> that's my, that's my a hundred or my, you know, my wholehearted encouragement. Well, Do being, what's right for you. Being off the grid is important too. If you're, you want to learn, you know, viticulture, or if you want to learn agriculture, that if you're blogging about it every day, you're less likely to, to be in the place where you are. Um, and you know, I'm, Thank I'm not, you. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not against social media, but part of the idea of a digital nomad is the idea that you can give yourself 30 minutes a day to talk to your clients or talk to your boss and spend the rest of the time immersed in the place you are. Like, what's the point of going around the world if you're going to be looking at your screen all day? Right. So exactly. Yeah. I, I think another thing too, one thing, and again, I don't want to knock social media too much, but there's this idea, again, going back to these Instagram images that make me a little bit jealous. There's this idea that travel is this milieu that always involves beauty and never involves mistakes. When in fact, mm -hmm. I, I think sort of stumbling into the world and sort of being a knucklehead, being the person who doesn't understand is exactly what leads to growth as you travel. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think it's it's also the idea, and again, like social media is a tool, and it's about being mindful about how we use it and how it works for each individual. So, you know, what I tell people is interrogate whether or not you want it to be a part of your trip, and if so, how. But if you find yourself spending all day on Facebook while you're in, you know, Bhutan 
or Morocco or wherever you are, why are you traveling? Like, you know, like you can do that at home. Like, you know? um, so that's, you know, that's what I tell people is look inward first, make that decision. And to your very good point, travel isn't always pretty. So get it, like, I, I warn people, if you're getting all of your travel impressions off of Instagram, you are going to be sorely disappointed, my friend. Like it's gonna, cause then you, the other thing is it, then you think you're doing it wrong or you're somehow failing. So I tell people to think about it the way you think of mommy blogs, where if you're looking at mommy blogs where people are like, I'm the perfect mother and my kid always has organic this and I made them this Star Wars themed lunch. If you're the mom who's slapping together a peanut butter and jelly and getting your kid out the door with mismatched socks, you're going to think you're a terrible parent. You're not. You're a great parent. So same thing with travel. If you're looking at why does this person look like a supermodel when I'm a sweaty hot mess because I just trekked for four and a half hours because that post is not accurate. I'm sorry. <laughs> so well, feels, I think there's a, yeah, there's a, there's a happy medium there somewhere. Yeah. And it feels like the learning begins when you make those mistakes. You know, the, the person capturing the perfect beach is actually surrounded by 300 other people who are waiting in line to get that same picture of the perfect beach. When in fact, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's the person who's sweating away in the kitchen of this seafood restaurant that they've never seen before, or the person who's suddenly talking about architecture in, in, in some back alley with this architecture they've never seen before, that it's actually coming to terms with not the dream version of your trip, but your actual passions and interests and distractions and mistakes that makes travel great. So uh, do you have a set of strategies that you offer people to really get past their travel dreams and two-dimensional impressions and really dig into the reality of travel? Yeah, I think it's, I ask them, we, we do a bit of inquiry around, you know, I'll tell them like, go out and, you know, find some images that really resonate with you. But I, I let them know some of your greatest and most triumphant moments on the road are going to start with the worst day you've ever had on the road. So we talk through that. I ask them to think back mindfully over their careers and lives and say like, tell me about some of your greatest accomplishments. And then we really look at how were the roots of those things essentially quote unquote mistakes or failures or negative. And then they're like, Oh, all right. So I think part of what I do as a coach is we talk through that. And, and, and I say, take a lot of these travel blogs and take social media with a grain of salt. They can be inspirational and that's wonderful. But it's like when you're flipping through a fashion magazine and you're like, well, I don't look like that. And it's like, babe, nobody looks like that. She doesn't look like that. That's five hours of hair and makeup, a professional photographer and six hours of post-production. So think of the travel media that you're consuming as, you know, a little bit enhanced and or edited and embrace the fact that your messiest moments can be. I mean, don't get out there and be the ugly American but understand that mistakes lead to so much learning um, and a lot of serendipity. Like when things go wrong, they might be going right. Um, and one of my examples from my trip is that I had a train in India that was 10 hours late. And at the time I was like, oh man, this is not fun. It is what it is, but I'm not enjoying this because you couldn't leave. Like the train was coming any minute now. It wasn't like, Oh, come back in six hours. It wasn't like a delayed flight. It was like, no, 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 it's on its way. 
So you couldn't leave and go grab lunch or go take a nap. Like, no, you had to be there on the platform. And I just remember being so exhausted. But what ended up happening was I ended up being adopted, essentially, by a woman who was a lay person. This was on my way to Bodh Gaya, um, which is a, a very holy Buddhist pilgrimage site. Struck up a conversation with a woman from Thailand who was this delightfully pushy and overbearing, like, auntie I'd never had who was like, what are you doing traveling alone? Like she was essentially up in my business. She's like, what are you crazy traveling alone? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, you're traveling alone. So we had a great conversation. And by the end of it, she said, oh, well, by the time the train arrives, we're going to be getting into Bodh Gaya at a really unsafe time. It's going to be about four in the morning. And I was like, great, even better icing on the cake. But then she looks at me and she says, where are you staying when you get there? And ended up taking me in. So for a week in Bodh Gaya, I slept on a plank next to a Buddhist nun because this woman who worked at the monastery adopted me. I never would have gotten that experience if my train hadn't been woefully late. It was one of the most beautiful things that happened on my trip because things technically, quote unquote, went wrong. So that's the story that I'll tell clients when I'm like, when stuff starts to hit the fan, take a pause and ask, maybe this is me being directed towards something better and get curious, see what comes up. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's sort of a culture shock thing. And I think the the worst mistake people can make sometimes is thinking, oh, India is doing this to me. India is making my life worse. When in fact, as, nope. your, as, <laughs> as, as your story illustrates, not only is it India doesn't have a personal interest in you at all, but actually, India is this place that works moves at a different pace entirely. Um, mm-hmm. And if you get too mired in your expectations, then there's this huge palette or menu of possibility that every day uh, holds, right? And that that gave you possibility in a way that really deepened your experience of India. Yes, it really and it, well, and it reminded me of also what you say in your book about when you are time rich. Mm-hmm. the world opens up to you. So for example, if I'd been on that trip and I only had a seven day itinerary, that delay might've been a kind of trip ruining because it was such a large percentage of the time I had. But because I was in India for a couple of months, a lost day is no big deal. Um, but yeah, that's one of the things I really appreciate about traveling in countries that do have a very different concept of time or move at a different pace. Because what India was essentially saying to me that day was like, oh, you want this to be convenient? <laughs> that's adorable. Get over yourself. Um, but also here's this gift. And I think travel is beautiful in that way. It's like, oh, you want to be comfortable. You want to be coddled. Tough. You know? <laughs> Suck it up. Um, and that you develop that muscle when you come home um, and, and you bring it home with you that when things hit the fan in the office, it's not going to freak you out as much because you now have that muscle of dealing with, you know, just a dumpster fire of a day and it's all right. Well, I want to talk about coming home and, and the reentry process, though it occurred to me as you were saying that I think, you know, we often talk about travelers versus tourists and I sort of poo poo that notion in vagabonding, but in a sense, mm-hmm. The old, the old paradigm of what we called air quotes tourists was really consumers. Like as consumers, we feel like we're, we're obligated, you know, that the, the world obligate is obligated to give us a, a specific experience that we paid for. When in fact, 90, 98% of the time, the world is just like, sorry, I'm the world. I'm not, I'm not here to give you a consumer experience. And so that's what you got in India. You know, you didn't get the consumer experience where the train shows up on time and, and you do what you're supposed to do. 
you got the real experience where the tr the train showed up when it showed up and you got an experience that was way cooler than you could ever have imagined while you're back home in California. So Exactly. Um, so you're I mean certainly your clients I guess there's there's two things that happen towards the end of a trip. One is knowing when to go home um because mm. sometimes you have a certain number of months set off for for your travel. Other times it might be more open ended, but sometimes it just feels right to go home, and and that it's, that prolonging the trip artificially might seem weird. So, how do you discuss with clients about when to come home, and then also, perhaps more importantly, that process of reentry, of going back not just to one's own country, but oftentimes to the job that one is taking a sabbatical from. Mm hmm. Yeah, those are great questions. I think. To your, to your good point, sometimes people's trips have a natural end point because especially for those clients of mine who've negotiated a sabbatical with their job, um, I'm very careful about letting them know, look, if you have negotiated a sabbatical and your employer has worked with you on this, don't burn that bridge. Be a person of your word. So if you know, for example, that you don't just need three months, which is what they'll give you, then you really do need to be having a different conversation and quit and go on a longer, more open-ended trip. However, if you've signed a contract that says I'll be gone six months and then I'll come back and I, I commit to another year or 18 months or whatever you've negotiated, you need to come home and do that year or 18 months. Um, so some clients know like, oh, in June of 2020, I'll be back, uh, you know, and I'll be either in the role that I was in before or perhaps on a different team, but I've told this employer I'm coming home. So they know that that happens. Other clients are out there in a more open-ended way. And then again, it's about being mindful and looking inward and saying, is it time to go home? And I think sometimes it's because they've accomplished what they said they wanted to. They've, they've had the trip they set out to have in that they have, you know, learned about wine and now they're ready to come home and do some apprenticing in the Pacific Northwest, which is what that client did. Um, you know, essentially I'm ready to go back to the States because the next phase of my career development I'm ready for. Um, other people do just hit that place of fatigue where it's like everything that I set out to do on the road, I've got under my belt and I'm ready to be home again. But it's about having that mindfulness. And I tell people also give yourself a chance to have rough days when you're like, Ugh, I hate this. I'm going home and double check. Is it that I'm really going home and I need to or am I just having a rough day and I need a time out? Yeah, because um, those come along where you're just like, this is the worst. I hate everything. And it's like that's when I tell people consider, do you need some cultural comfort food? And we talk about that before you go. Um, one of my examples was I had a long weekend in South Korea where it was just pouring out and the guest house where I was staying was playing. I'm not proud of this, but I've admitted it in public. So I'll do it again. They were playing like this back to back to back marathon of CSI Miami, um, which is not a show I'd ever really watched before, but I was like, Oh, it's in English. This is great. And we all just kind of sat around vegetating and watching CSI Miami for hours on end. And I kind of just needed to do that because what I didn't realize is that for months I'd been traveling and learning in foreign languages and not watching television at all. It was strangely comforting to watch David Caruso run around the Everglades, taking his sunglasses off and putting them back on. And then three days later, I could just go out and deal with Korea again. And it was wonderful. I actually, but I needed that pause. <laughs> well, I had a similar experience in, in India, actually. India just had me 
had me really run down. And I think sometimes having bad days in foreign countries means you're trying. You know, if, if you if you insulate yeah. yourself with too much comfort, you're probably not trying hard enough. And so I was really, I was throwing myself into Bombay and Bombay was kicking my ass. And I went to see, in the theater was showing Dude, Where's My Car? Which is sort of a forgotten <laughs> action question. Yes! Movie. I've never had more that, that like saved my soul in India. It, it bought me another month in India of watching Dude Where's My Car, and it, it sounds it sounds absurd, but it's 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 a legitimate thing. That one, if you're having a horrible day overseas, it probably means that you're you're making yourself vulnerable to that country, and two, you can cheat in 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 ways that you would never back home, be it CSI yes. Miami or Dude Where's My Car. Yeah. <laughs> And I love something that you just said was such a great clip and save, which is like sometimes when you're having a really rough day on the road, it means that you're trying Hmm. like that's I love that because I tell people I'm like, look, travel is kind of strength training for your soul. So if you're going to go to the gym and just sit on an exercise bike or stand still on a treadmill or the Stairmaster, why are you at the gym? Like it should hurt the next day. And so there are times on the road when you have to decide, am I going to really push myself today or is today a recovery day? Am I going to be gentle? And that's one of the biggest lessons I think we can take home is, okay, yeah, Bombay is kissing, like kicking my ass today. This is hard. So I'm going to go watch Dude, Where's My Car? <laughs> I love that example because, again, in Argentina, I remember going to see – this is my boyfriend at the time. We went to see Harry Potter because we'd been traveling through Latin America for months and both of us spoke and speak Spanish, but we just kind of needed to watch something in English. And I remember um, our host in, in Buenos Aires was like, well, yeah, Harry Potter's fun for you because you don't have to read. Meaning when she goes, just to read the subtitles in Spanish. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, we just needed to watch something just fluffy and fun. And yeah, we went to watch Harry Potter and it was great. <laughs> so. That's a great piece of advice. I'm, I might have to give that piece of advice more often, you know, because we sort of talk mm-hmm. about travel in this heightened language. But we forget sometimes that sometimes you just need to you need to you know scratch your soul a little bit and just just relax and just do the dumbest thing you can possibly think of. I, I've, I've described "Dude, Where's My Car" as like this heroin injection of American culture. I don't even know why it was showing in India or what Indians thought of that movie, but it was it was like you know this this mainline syringe of America for an hour and a half, and it it worked really well. Um, I I honor your self-knowledge and doing what you needed to do. Cause like now I feel less stupid about admitting like, yeah, I watched like hours of CSI Miami and I'm not even sorry. <laughs> yeah. No. And, and then, then like, uh, you know, a year and a half later I started writing vagabonding. So, you know, that this is, this is the guy who wrote vagabonding. He's a dude. Where's my car guy. Um, yeah, real quick. We're talking about low points overseas. I think sometimes you have, you, you work your way through those points overseas. Um, you work, you experience high points overseas and then you come home and it can be weirdly anticlimactic. You know, the shower is nice. Uh, the widescreen, the flat screen TV is great, but it feels a little weird. So do you have any advice yeah. for people who are, who are trying to, 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 to manage that transition back home? Mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing is to, and you do this beautifully in your book is warn them, not even warn them, but it's, it's almost another form of permission which is to let them know ahead of time, it's going to be rough. Like re-entry, not always, but re-entry is going to be rough um, in a lot of ways because there's something about being on the road where 
time is elastic. It's almost magical. Like time, you can be gone for three months and you come home transformed. You're a different person. And I think two things, A, know that it's going to be difficult and that there were, there are some people who no matter how much they love you, they're not going to get it. And that's all right. Um, no matter how much your friends care and support you, if they haven't had a trip that's similar or an experience that's similar, they probably, they will support you and care about you, but they're not going to understand what you're going through. So my second piece of advice is find your tribe of people who do get it. And when you need to lean into them, because when you come home, you're going to be talking about, and, and, and also I'll say this in defense of the people who are at home who don't get it, they probably don't want to hear about your trip constantly in the way that you need to talk about it and process it. So find the people who do want to hear about it um, because it's similar to any type of transformative experience in life where people who've had something similar will be like, oh, I feel you. Yeah, talk it out. And people who might not have, that's not a problem. So decide how much you're going to burden them and bend their ear and find the people who you can talk to. Um, because I remember one of my clients put it this way. She was like, you know, I feel like a totally new woman and I'm talking to friends who I love about the changes they've had. And they're like, Oh, Sharon got a new haircut. (laughs) That's what's happened while you were gone. And those changes in their lives are just as important to them. So be sensitive to the fact that you might feel that their evolution over the past few months might not mirror yours. But try to have that enthusiasm for what they've been up to. And if you feel like there's a disconnect in understanding, find the people who can meet you where you are. It can be bumpy. Are there any tips specific to reintegrating back into work? Because there's an extent to which your experience overseas is going to enhance how you work and it's going to enhance your emotional reaction to certain, for example, crises in work. But you don't want to be the dude that every day is saying, well, in Zagreb, actually, they do it better, (laughs) right? So. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I had <laughs> I had a, a client who once said, "Oh no, I'm turning into that person who was the obnoxious study abroad kid who, like, senior year of university is like, well, in Barcelona." Like, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. So I I tell people two things that are really useful are to look at what your trip has given to you. And to be ready to express it in what I call boardroom terms. So you're, you've been running around the world with a backpack and now you have to speak corporate. So when people, cause you're, you're probably going to get a little side eye too, and that's okay. So when people say like, Oh, tell me about this weird hippie backpacking vagabonding trip you took. If you respond to them with, to your point, well, in Zagreb, they're going to be like, Oh, this guy. Yeah. But if you can say to them, some of the things that you got professionally out of your trip. So if you say, well, actually, you know, I took this trip so I could focus on volunteering and I really wanted to enhance my language skills or build this type of a skill set. So I actually bring that to the table now and I'm looking forward to applying it to help the team succeed. Ooh, okay, great. Yeah, we've got Dave on the team now. This is awesome. So I think looking at what are your employer's strategic development initiatives, essentially how does what, how you've grown as a professional serve your employer and then highlight those talking points for them. 
then they're going to want to hear about your trip. Like, oh, really? I had no idea you do that. Like, tell me how you developed that skill set. Oh, well, I was volunteering in Tanzania and here's some information. But if what you really want to talk about is, oh, well, I was hanging out with like Australian surfers, they may or may not want to hear about that part. And that's okay. Yeah, the, the the phrase that popped into my head just now was was douchebag proof. You have to douchebag proof your stories, right? So that you don't come, <laughs> up, come up like yep. a douchebag every time it comes up. And really, it's you know, douchebag or not, it's a matter of framing. You know, it's a matter of framing this knowledge that's not self-aggrandizing, um, but it's about um, you know enhancing the the total situation. I think exactly. And, you know, some of the questions that my clients will think about on the road, I'm like, think about how fun it's going to be in an interview, for example. You know, you're sitting there with a recruiter or a hiring manager, somebody who has the authority to bring you on as a candidate. How unique is it going to be when they when they throw one of those tried and true stale questions at you about, well, tell me about a time when you dealt with a challenge. <laughs> and rather than saying like, oh, well, Excel crashed this one time, you get to say, well, uh, the train I was supposed to take broke down. So I ended up taking a ferry or, you know, like you're going to have some really unique perspectives and, you know, essentially you're building muscles that will serve you in the workplace. So think about how your travel has developed you as a professional and then just pitch that. And to your very good point, try not to be a douche about it. (laughs) (laughs) That's something for all my listeners to keep in mind. Now, Keeping my listeners in mind and knowing that we're at the, at the top of the hour, one of the one of the client outtakes you sent me involved a story about being stuck in traffic every day for two hours going to work, and that's not something mm-hmm. I've I've dealt with because I've been a freelancer for years and years and years. But in my mind, there's a listener who's listening to this during their two hour commute. They're listening to us talk about this, and they're thinking, "Hmm, can I do this? What would you say to this person? How would you sell the idea of a life-enhancing sabbatical to that poor person who's stuck in traffic on the way to work right now? Mm, uh, Well, I would say first and foremost, you are not alone. I've been there. So many of my clients have been there. And I think it's really a matter of looking at, might it happen tomorrow? Maybe not. But if you can dig deep and do two hours commute each way, for your job, you have what it takes to dig deep and do the work that is necessary to get a trip like this for yourself on the books. And one of the questions I ask all of my clients, whether it's sabbatical coaching clients or, you know, even when I'm doing leadership development in corporate environments is look how deep you dig and look how hard you hustle for other people. What if you took a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of that and allotted that energy and passion and know-how to yourself? You know, your professional goals and your personal goals are just as worthy. So take a little bit of that battery capacity and a little bit of that focus. And if you turn it to your trip, it'll happen sooner than you expect. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Tara Quinn's sabbatical coaching services, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.